that month, the search committee from Freedom's Church, consisting of six people, drove down to Gurney, Illinois, where Shelley and I lived. And they met us at our church. I preached a sermon to them so they could hear what it's like to hear me preach. We went out to dinner together, and then they came back to our townhome, uh, where they asked us questions for a couple hours to get to know us better. And near the end of the evening, it was probably around 10 p.m., they asked if Shelley and I had any questions of them. Shelley leaned over and whispered into my ear, should we tell them about adoption? And you see, we were planning to start the adoption process from Ethiopia soon after I started pastoring somewhere. And we were wondering, if, if I became senior pastor of Freedon's Church, how would the people of Freedon's respond if we were to adopt and bring this little African baby into the church? How would they respond? I mean, it's a small church, small Wisconsin town. We weren't really sure, so we, so we asked them. We laid out our plans. We asked, how would the people respond if we planned to adopt from Ethiopia? And what happened next is a moment that no one in that room will ever forget. There was a moment of silence, and then all of a sudden, everyone started speaking at once. It was just this, this loud explosion of noise because everyone was so excited to tell us about this culture of adoption. They had been at Freedon's for decades upon decades. Someone pulled out a church directory and pointed us to certain families who had adopted. Others were telling us stories of specific uh, families who had done foster care and others who had adopted. And, I mean, it was just so exciting to hear the story of the culture of adoption and foster care and orphan care that God had been building here at Freedon's for many, many years. Now, today is Orphan Sunday. We're joining with hundreds of churches from around the country, remembering that God is a father to the fatherless and that he calls us to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Today we are celebrating not only God's heart to father the fatherless, but we're also celebrating what he has done in and through Freedom's Church down through the years to build this culture. We have the slogan of God loves adoption and so does Freedom's Church. Today we're looking at how did God work down through the years to develop this culture and this heart in our church family. And with that in mind, I would like to invite the children forward for the children's message. Here in 2015, the most obvious expression of Frieden's heart for adoption and orphan care is our Forever Families ministry. That's why many of us are wearing these Forever Families shirts today in honor of Orphan Sunday. But we have to understand that the, the heart for adoption and orphan care here at Frieden's began way before Forever Families started. I mean, just as an example, back in 2010, the Ozaki Press published an article in Frieden's Church that was titled Church of the Adopted Child. You can still read this article online on their website today. But this article chronicled the development of this heart for adoption and orphan care down through the years. And the thing we have to understand is this article was written before the first Forever Families event. There had not been any Forever Families events when this article was written. So it was about the culture that developed here down through the years prior to Forever Families. And to help us understand more of how this culture developed down through the years, I'd like to invite Litha Miller to come on up. Litha has a great perspective on this, really a, a front row seat in, in seeing the culture develop and also in contributing to the culture of adoption and orphan care here at the church. Litha grew up in the church uh, here and... Also, and very significantly, uh, she and her family uh, for the last 13 years have provided foster care for 107 children. So that is a lot of children, a lot of experience there, and you've adopted two of them as well. 
Um, now, 13 years, 107 children. How did you and Gary get started in this journey of foster care? Um, to be truthful, we did not start with babies. We started with kittens through the Mean Society. And um, we did foster care for them um, when our kids were, my three adult kids were younger. And it kind of grew from there. And the one thing that we learned through the kitten experience was the cat factor. And if it were up to my kids, we would have kept every kitten because every kitten was the best. It was the cutest. It was the funnest. It was everything. And um, my husband pointed out that you can't keep every one because that's illegal. You would have too many cats in your house. So I would have to say we started with the kittens and that um, really kind of was how it all began and we learned about the cat factor um, when we went into foster care. Um, it was my idea and I grew up, uh, my parents were foster parents. I was a biological child to them. They took in um, over, over 37 kids. We're not exactly sure. Sometimes we look at them and we think sometimes kids just showed up at the house and I don't think that they were through foster kid I care. I think it was through word of mouth. Um, and so they took in kids, and that was something that was dear to my heart. I had three children of my own, and I couldn't have any more. But my heart yearned to have a big family. And so I persuaded my husband that we should really try this, and we could try it once, and if he didn't like it, we didn't have to do it again. And I will be perfectly honest with you, I think I tricked him because <laughs> I knew in my heart what it was like and how much I wanted that. And um, once he, we took in the first few foster kids, he realized he could love so much bigger and so much out of the box. Um, if I would have told him then, oh, no, I plan to hit 100 kids, he would have said, no, we're going to stick with kittens. We are not going to do this. So it was something that grew. I don't think we actually, I was thinking this about this after the service, I don't think we actually counted till we were like at 57 or 58 before we realized we had that many kids that came through the house. So that's how it all started. Well, and it's so cool to see where it's grown since then. I mean, we look at the whole culture of Freedens. Uh, right now there are at least eight families who are part of Freedom's Church who have provided foster care at some point, and they provide foster care for at least 163 children, which is pretty remarkable. And if you're looking for a total number of families whose, whose family story includes foster care or adoption, there are at least 17 families in the church today. I mean, Freedom's Church family here in 2015 whose family has foster care or adoption as part of their family story. So it's pretty remarkable now, you've been here really throughout the growth of this culture in the church for a number of decades now. Yeah. How have you seen that culture develop over time? Well, when I was young, um, Pastor Scholter was here, and he had three daughters of his own and um, had adopted two sons. Um, the interesting thing, or where he crossed over the line, was his sons were uh, Native Americans. They were American Indians which was not ever heard of back then. Um, a white family would never have taken in a child of a different race. Um, that was back in, in the 60s. 60s. Yeah, <laughs> now that everybody can try and figure out how old I am. 
Do the, do the math real quick. That's not why we brought it up. <laughs> it's just do the to say, math. I mean, that's 50 um, years of adoption yeah, and culture yeah. that's been developing. So they, they had, and those boys were my, are my age, um, and so I grew up with them at, at that same time. My parents were foster parents, um, and they were taking in a, a difficult group um, back in the late 60s and early 70s, um, in, and I'm going to title this even though it's probably inappropriate, but they took in what was classified as um, um, unwed mothers. And back then, if you got pregnant, you got thrown out of the house or you got sent to Mississippi to live with your aunt. Um, and so my parents took in this difficult group of the mother and child. Um, and that's, you know, it was very hard. And so you, you had a lot of different dynamics going on in the church because you had that group and then, you know, Showalters and then Mark and Sue Vole, they adopted two children. They're the previous pastor here prior yeah. to me. And I can remember being um, in my early 20s, and there were other families that were going through um, private adoption. I think at the time, my parents may have been the only ones in foster care, but I can remember other families showing up with a baby and nobody ever questioned. It was like, oh, how wonderful, you, you have a family. And I think that was the part that, in, as a young person, I thought was so wonderful, was nobody ever said, oh, well, that's not your blood, or, you know, there was never any comments like that. Everybody was so joyous that, well, now you have a family. It, it didn't matter where that child came from. So I think growing up here really helped me and, and my older kids and my husband understand, and, and hopefully, you know, as I can see out there, I know that there's many women here who didn't understand why they were having this feeling to adopt, or they felt incomplete, and um, adoption completed them. So hopefully I was encouraging. And now, I mean, 107 children, 13 years through foster care, and now, as we've talked, even over the last few weeks, you've talked about you're kind of at this crossroads right now in terms of foster care and your involvement there, just of trying to determine where is God leading you next in this realm. So could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, right now with um, one of the things that I shared the first service was um, there's homes down in Milwaukee, and they're called group homes. Um, they're not the group homes like we, we imagine, but um, if a a sibling group of six or seven come in, they really do their best to try and keep them together. So they will have a home that doesn't necessarily have like somebody living there. So foster parents will come in and spend nights. Some come just for the weekends, some come just for the days. But there's such a need because one of the things that these foster parents who do the night, those children have to get undressed and some only go to bed in their underwear so that those foster parents can wash their clothes so that they have clean clothes to put on in the morning. Um, it's been laid on my heart these last couple of months because I've had trouble with my knees, that's why I walk funny, um, that maybe somebody needs to organize this and, and get these kids clothes. Um, you know yourself, teenagers like to wear blue jeans. And if they only have that one pair, they get washed at night and, and stuff. So there's so, many, there's so many different needs. I think there's so much judgment passed on, on these, these moms who are, are raising these kids who never had moms. 
And so we say to ourselves when we see the news or we see something that may be inappropriate, what were they thinking? What did they do that for? I think we have to look back and see, did anybody, was anybody a mom to them? Was anybody a dad to them? You know, a lot of these young moms are raising children the way they were raised without a mom. So I think a lot of these things have been um, crossed over my table and um, some challenges and that. And I think that the, that right now with foster care, there's so many needs. It's not just taking somebody into your home. It's bigger. It's, it's huge. It's a huge need. And I'm not talking Milwaukee County. When we started, we were going to go with Ozaki County, and they told us, well, we only have like three to six kids a year. Um, so that's why Gary and I had gone to Milwaukee County, and um, they kept us very busy. However, right now, Ozaki County, Washington County, Sheboygan County overflows. They are looking for homes now outside because there's such a need. And with that need comes the burden of how are we addressing these kids? Um, when there was a couple of years back, you know, Gary and I, we, in two months, we bought 11 coats, winter coats. Through that whole winter, we bought 17 winter coats. Hmm. We weren't going to let these kids be cold. And I wasn't going to take them out and let anybody say, oh, you know what, you can tell which ones are her foster kids and which ones are not. Um, that wasn't the case. So we bought them you know, the clothes and the coats they needed. So I think one of the challenges that I see is trying to connect the people who have things with the people who don't. Mm. So that's kind of one, of one of the things I'm looking into. But yeah, I'm at a crossroads right now because you see all these other things, all these other needs that fosters, the foster care system and these orphans need. Yeah, I mean, there are so many needs. I mean, worldwide, there are somewhere in the range of 147 million orphans right now, which is just a mind-boggling number. But even right here in our own communities, yeah. there are yeah. tremendous needs. And it's for those people who don't want to send their money, you know, because there are so many questionable organizations right now. You don't have to worry about sending your money. You can, you can pick up your coat. You can go take it right where you want it to be if you want to do that. Um, I know for, I think last year, the year before, there was between 37 and 3,800 kids in just Milwaukee County that were taken into foster care. Wow. And, and you hope for reunification, but that doesn't, then we have adoption. Mm -hmm. So there's always an out. But yeah, there's a big need. Thank you for sharing, Lytha. Um, just amazing to see what God does and how you never, you didn't know when you started that journey with kittens and maybe with one or two foster kids where it was going to lead, but just how amazing where it's led now for you and then for the church as a whole. Um, to me, one of the most encouraging things about the culture of adoption and orphan care that we have here at Freedens is how God has impacted people's lives through it. We could look at any number of different types of examples, but I think, for instance, of the Forever Families grants that we give out to help families who are in the process of adoption. Over the last uh, five, six years that Forever Families has been going, we've been able to give out grants to 18 families to help with the adoption of 23 children. And this really makes a difference. And because pictures are so much more powerful than words and statistics, I'd like to show you a video now of the families who have received Forever Families grants. 
Well, it's just, it's humbling and encouraging and fun to be a part of these types of stories that, as we say, God loves adoption and so does Freedom's Church, and it's not just lip service, it really is true. And as I said, God is making a difference and impacting people's lives through adoption and orphan care. I will say, adoption and orphan care and foster care is not always easy. There are certainly some very, very challenging parts of it, and I'm speaking from experience here as an adoptive father. But also we have to recognize that many people's lives are are changed for the better because of adoption and foster care. As another example, I think of of the Jaffke family. Uh, uh, Buffy and Paul and their boys have been attending church here for the last couple of years. And their sons, Chris and Skyler, were foster children in their home when they started attending here. Uh, so, So it wasn't like Freedens inspired them to do foster care. But I think one of the things that helped attract them here and helps make this a good home for them is because um, they are connected with other foster families here. And so uh, they have Chris and Skylar, and they officially were able to adopt them this last year. And so we're very excited for them. But this last May, we did um, cardboard testimonies where people talk about the difference that Christ has made in someone's life. And, and Chris and Skylar got a hold of this cardboard, got a hold of markers, and they started putting stuff on there. And their parents had no idea what they were putting on there. Their parents actually didn't know until it was displayed in the church service a week later. But here is Skylar's. Uh, Skylar's the younger of the two boys. As I said, they grew up in foster care. I mean, really almost an unimaginably difficult family situation they grew up in. Before, he said, no family with a sad face on there. But now, he said, God, is, God adopted me with a smiley face. And, and so, I mean, you look at the difference here, and, and this, this picture really does show the difference that for foster care and then adoption has made in his life. And he is also beginning to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the things about all the families who receive Forever Families grants is they're all Christian families. And so these children are growing up in an environment where they hear the gospel and hopefully and prayerfully grow up to be followers of Jesus. So, so that's really cool. But Chris, the older one, I think is even more descriptive because he's able to put more into words being older he said before, his life was characterized by anger, miserable life, no love, no heat, no home, not loved. And if you know his background, uh, those things are certainly true of his before. But now that he's been adopted into a family, he, his life is more characterized by peace. He says it's a happy life. He's a Christian. He has a real mom, a real life. He is loved. That's the difference that... We can see right before our own eyes of a family who has done foster care and adoption. And the story has been multiplied many, many times in our congregation. There are many other adoptive families, even here this morning, who weren't represented in that video, but are still part of Freedom's Church. I also think of the impact on the adults. I think of Paul and Tabitha Sargent. They were here last year speaking at Orphan Sunday. Uh, Paul and Tabitha have been connected somewhat with Forever Families for a number of years. They just adopted uh, this last year, and they received a Forever Families grant. But as I said, their connection goes back several years to 2011 when we held our first Forever Families Adoption 101 workshop. One of their relatives had seen an ad in the newspaper for this workshop, showed it to them, they, they showed up. And over the course of that workshop, they realized, you know what, we're not Christians. 
and that, that planted a seed in them to make them begin to seek a little bit more, wondering, you know what, what is this Christian thing all about? God planted a bunch of other seeds in their life through other people, other circumstances. A couple of years ago, they ended up coming to faith in Christ, and now they're strong, solid followers of Jesus. And one of the big seeds that God sowed in their life to bring them to Christ was the Forever Families Ministry. And so we celebrate what God has done through Forever Families, through adoption, through orphan care, through foster care, because it really does impact people's lives. And it impacts the culture around us. More and more and more, Freedom's Church is becoming known as the Adoption Church. We are, we are known, um, I mean, many people in our community know, you know what, they, they're the church that does forever families. They do orphan stuff. They do adoption stuff, foster care. And it's really cool. Even this last week, I got a phone call from a woman I'd never met. She doesn't live in Port, but in, actually in Grafton. And she was asking questions about forever families. She was interested in it, not because she's interested in receiving a grant, because that's not why she was calling. She was calling because she heard about forever families from someone else. And was interested in learning more because she was wondering if she might be able to contribute to what God is doing through forever families. And so we see that, that God has really built this culture of adoption and orphan care into the fabric of Freedom's Church. And it's making a difference, increasingly so, in the broader community. And today we're talking about this idea of culture and creating culture. We're in a series right now called Engage. Engage is all about engaging our ever-changing culture with an ever-changing gospel. And we're just going to talk for a few minutes about this concept of creating culture. Over the last month or so, we've talked about the spectrum of cultural engagement that Christians can have, where we know that we should not conform to the patterns of this world completely. We, we also generally know that we shouldn't cocoon ourselves in isolation from the world because Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And if we are salt, we have to recognize salt doesn't do much good if it only stays in the salt shaker. So we have to get out. We have to engage with the broader world, with the gospel. And we've been talking about these three main avenues by which we can engage the world. We can, at times, confront culture in ways that it, uh, that it disagrees with God or is contrary to God. We should also be conversing with culture, this two-way dialogue in which we are engaging in relationships with people and with, with ideas and with institutions to try to sow seeds for the gospel there. But also, we should be creating new culture. It is Christ-centered culture that can help draw people to Christ and help, help build the world in the way that God designed it to be in the first place. Now, many Christians, they're familiar with the idea of confronting culture and conversing with culture, but this idea of creating culture can seem much more abstract. But that's what we're talking about uh, today. And one of the things we have to understand is that the way to change culture is by creating new culture. If we want to change culture, if we want to have a cultural impact, if we want to be reaching people with the gospel, we have to understand that, that the way that we can change culture in any way, but particularly in a positive, Christ-centered, godly way, is by creating new culture. Now, this may sound kind of strange, like, what does this really mean? Well, let me give you an example. Every family has its own unique culture. It's just the way it is. It's its own unique culture that, um, that shapes 
the, the daily routines of that family. It shapes the family's view of God. It shapes the family's methods of communication and conflict resolution. The family's culture shapes, um, I mean, what they wear, what types of things they buy, how they schedule their time, how they spend their money. It shapes so much about that family. Now imagine that someone in the family decides, you know what, there's some aspect of our family's culture, even though they probably don't use those terms, but still, there's a culture there. There's something in our family that, that needs to change. How are they going to create change in their family? Well, it's, it's by creating some aspect of new culture in that family and seeking to get buy-in into that new aspect of culture. For instance, someone in the family might decide, you know what, we need to get healthier as a family. So what do they do? Well, it, it doesn't work just to sit there and talk about getting healthier. At some point, someone has to make, take the initiative to, to, make a, to start a new practice, perhaps of exercising or of eating healthier. And one person does that, and they're hoping then to get the buy-in of the rest of the family. And as they do so, they're creating new culture and thereby changing the culture of the broader family. Another example, okay, our money is kind of tight, spending is out of control, so we're going to create a new cultural practice in our family of keeping a budget to track how much is coming in and how much is going out. It begins to change the culture of a family as it's implemented. Or say a family decides, you know what, we need some more time together as a family. We're just kind of fragmented right now. So for supper... Rather than all sitting in front of the TV to watch, or to watch TV while we're eating supper, we're all going to turn off the TV. We're going to gather around the supper table and eat together. You know what? It's a simple practice, something new, that changes the culture of the family. And that's how we change culture, whether it's in a smaller section of society like a family, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a nation. I mean, it can be daunting to think about changing the country or changing the world, but it helps to start by looking on the smaller scale to understand how does change happen here and then how can it then go out from that point. So the way they change culture is by creating new culture. And we have to understand that when we look at Jesus, he was a culture maker. He really was a, a culture maker. Pretty much everything he touched, he brought something new to, some new dynamics, some new practice, some new value to pretty much everything he did but part, partly that makes it hard to figure out what one passage do we focus on because pretty much every passage you can point out something that he's bringing something new to the table here to change things, to bring them more in line with God's way of doing things. And for that reason, and also just because of the shortness of our time together this morning, this message is quite a bit different than usual. One of the ways it's different is that we're not only focusing on one particular passage. Typically at this point in the message I would say, please turn your Bibles to such and such book. We're not going to do that today. I am going to reference scripture, but for sake of our time together this morning, probably the more effective thing, if you want to study this stuff in depth, is to get out a pen and a piece of paper, take notes, and look at these passages of scripture a little bit later. Because we're going to just breeze through a couple of them as we're looking at Jesus as a culture maker. I think, for instance, of how Jesus changed the culture of prayer. He changed the culture of prayer and cultivated this idea that prayer is designed to be a personal connection with the Father. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, it's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So it goes on from there, but Jesus teaches his disciples to address God 
as father. And this was a radical departure from the norm in that Jewish society because normally Jews addressed God in very exalted language, saying, Sovereign Lord, Almighty God. It makes a big difference when you begin to look at God as your father because then you are a child going to your loving father. You aren't merely a common citizen going to a king. You aren't merely a a criminal going before a judge, even though these might also be relevant ways to approach God in prayer. But Jesus' predominant way of teaching about prayer is going to God as a loving father. And Jesus also changed the culture of prayer in terms of where to pray and how to pray. Jesus said in verse 6 of Matthew 6, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. You see, a lot of the Jewish leaders of that day, they, they focused on really elaborate public prayers to draw attention to themselves. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it should be. Yeah, you can pray in public. There's nothing wrong with that. But the majority of your prayer life should be behind closed doors. It should be in private between you and God. It's that personal connection with the Father. Because really, prayer, our prayer life should be much like an iceberg, where you have an iceberg, you know, I mean, just a very small portion of the iceberg is actually visible above the surface. Public prayers are fine. Praying in groups is good. But the bulk of our prayer life should be more below the surface, uh, between us and God, not as a show to others, uh, but, but that personal connection with our Father. And this is what Jesus is teaching over and over and over. And he didn't just teach it with his words. He modeled it with his life. I mean, Jesus, pretty much every time he prayed, anywhere recorded here in Scripture, he addressed God as Father. Not, not every time, but the vast majority of the time, he addressed God as Father, and he taught his disciples to do the same. And now that's carried on down through the centuries to us today. He introduced a new cultural practice then, and it changed the culture of the way Christians prayed ever since. Jesus also modeled praying anywhere and praying in private. Uh, he, he, for instance, frequently went off into the wilderness and just prayed by himself in private. So he modeled exactly what he was teaching. And this is one of the ways that he really put forth a new practice, a new form of culture in, in, in terms of prayer. And then it began to be internalized by the people around him and passed on to others. So he, he changed culture by creating a new aspect of culture. Another example is Jesus' practices and teaching on leadership and on greatness. Now, typically when we think of leadership and greatness, we think of, of power or of authority or of um, this resume of, of, of impressive accomplishments. Jesus says, no, it's not about that at all. Humility is really the key to leadership and greatness in the kingdom of God. I want to turn our attention now to Luke chapter 22. It's at the Last Supper. Um, there's this, this really disheartening uh, conversation that breaks out at the dinner table um, that night at the Last Supper, just before Jesus was crucified. Luke 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, put yourself in Jesus' shoes here for a minute. You've just told them, okay, this is my body which is broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's talking about how he's going to be crucified tomorrow. And, and here they are getting in an argument with each other about, hey, which one of us is the greatest? You know what? I think it's me. I, I'm doing all these things. I've helped Jesus here. I've seen him do these things over here. And they're getting in an argument about which one is greatest. 
Listen to what Jesus says to them. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus is saying, you know what? Greatness and leadership in the kingdom of God is not about your accomplishments. It's not about um, your, your, certainly not your pride. It's not about your authority, not about your power or ability to lord it over others. It's about humbly serving. Jesus said, I am uh, among you as one who serves. And this is apparent throughout his ministry. Again, it's not just teaching. It's, it's things he's doing. I mean, it's apparent in his simple lifestyle that he lived. It's apparent in the men that he called to be his disciples. They weren't the big, up-and-coming, hot-shot young Jews. They were just ordinary people with, with a lot of messiness in their lives. But you see this humble servant attitude here in terms of leadership and greatness in the kingdom of God. I mean, you see it in how Jesus in, in John chapter 13 washed the feet of his disciples. I mean, the picture of humble service. And you see it especially in Jesus' death for us. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' death is the ultimate form of humble service. He is humble, and he calls us to do the same. And as you read through the rest of the New Testament, these, these people who have followed Jesus, who have respected him, who have seen his modeling, they are carrying forth these same mentalities in their teaching. And so Jesus began in a new aspect of culture in terms of how people think about leadership and greatness in the kingdom of God. And for him, the key was humility. He modeled it. And by, by instituting new practices around this, it helped ingrain it in the culture. And so now Christians everywhere are called to model leadership and, and, and anything we strive for with humility, not with pride or arrogance. And so we see that Jesus, he's confronting a lot of aspects of his culture, but he's doing it in a way that doesn't just create a protest of, you know what, that's wrong, stop doing that. But he's actually introducing new cultural practices to say, you know what, rather than doing this, this is what you should do. And that is the power of creating new culture. Um, and, and we have to recognize Jesus calls us to be culture makers as well. We are Christ's ambassadors. He is a culture maker. He calls us to be a culture maker as well. Now, it's not, not complete free-for-all innovation in terms of, you know what, do whatever you want. No, it, it, we're trying to create culture that influences people in such a way that it points them back to Christ, points them to God's original design for the way that things were. Did you hear what I said earlier about how if our main focus in how we engage culture is protesting what's going on in culture and is condemning culture and is confronting culture, if we're only doing that, our influence over people and our influence for the sake of the gospel is going to be very limited. Because people, you know what, they're just going to close their ears. They're going to be like, okay, you're telling me I'm not, not to do that, but, but why? why? What else should I do? And that's where creating culture comes in so powerfully is that we aren't just contrasting ourselves with what's going on right now in culture, but we're offering something different, hopefully something better as the alternative. And, and in doing so, we're creating 
new culture and, and seeking buy-in for this new culture that aligns with the kingdom of God. I think of an example I saw on Facebook this week. Um, it's, it's another picture, cardboard. It's not quite a cardboard testimony. There are signs that someone might hold outside of an abortion clinic. I mean, you, you think about the signs that, that some Christians might want to hold outside of an abortion clinic in protest of what's going on there. might be signs like abortion is murder or choose life or stuff like that. It's protesting what's going on here. But, but what caught my attention in this idea of, of creating culture is that you know, these people holding these signs, they're not just saying, don't abort. I mean, they say, God loves you and your baby. Then the other sign says, please don't abort. We will adopt your child. Come talk to us. I think, you know what? That's a really neat picture of creating a culture of sorts, putting something new out there rather than just protesting what's taking place. Say, you know what? Here's an alternative. And we will be right here to help, um, help you down this new path that we're suggesting you go. And that's the power of creating an attractive, positive culture rather than just condemning what's out there. And, and the odds of people following that path, and when you create something positive and attractive, yeah, it's something new, but, but the odds of them following that are much greater than you just, if you just say, you know what, don't do that. And so God calls us to focus on, on creating new culture. Jesus did that all the time. He took what was there and he added a new twist to it. Or he'd alter it in some way. He'd offer an alternative And this is one of the ways that he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, changed the world. And we have the opportunity to do the same type of thing. I mean, you think, for instance, about what would happen if when someone new moved into our neighborhood, we were intentional to go in their first couple days there and invite them over for a meal at our house. What would happen if that became our practice in our family? What would happen if we made it a practice of writing one handwritten thank you or note of appreciation every day to someone in our lives. I would bet that that would begin to deepen and, and, and broaden and improve the relationships that we have with people around us and build bridges even for the sake of the gospel. What would happen to the culture of our family if we decided, you know what, I'm going to set aside one night a week for a date night with my spouse. That's a new practice that I promise would change the culture of your family. What about at work? If you just choose, you know what? I'm just going to have a bowl of really good candy on my desk for people to freely take. Something very simple. But you know what? It's the accumulation of a lot of simple choices intentionally made that make a big difference in the long run. Because you know what? Odds are good then people would be more likely to stop by your desk. You get in conversations with them, create a positive, um, literally positive taste in their mouth. It could make a difference. It's these little things, the accumulation of, of small choices that they insert something new into an existing culture that begin to change the culture of that place. I mean, imagine in a church setting. I mean, for me, I think a lot about culture of church. What would happen in a church if every single person... Every Sunday was intentional that rather than only congregating with the people they know after the service, they were intentional just to go meet one person they didn't know before and get to know them. That would transform the culture of a church. And think about what happens then if you don't just have isolated individuals doing these types of things, but then you have a whole group doing it, like Christians in the neighborhood all doing the same thing, all saying, okay, 
we want to be the best, most generous servants in this neighborhood possible. So we're going to band together. And anytime we know of a need, we're going to band together and, and go and help meet that need for our neighbor. Think about the doors for ministry uh, that would open in addition to simply being a blessing to them in Christ's name. I mean, as a church family, I look at forever families and I look at our culture of adoption and orphan care, how we can accomplish so much more together than any of us could alone. I mean, one person alone adopting a child or providing foster care can certainly make a big difference. But when you get a whole bunch of people together, working together for the same cause, initiating new culture, it makes a difference. And that's why I think Forever Families and our culture of adoption and orphan care is such a great picture of what it's like to create new culture. I bet that when the Showalter family, the pastors back in the 60s and 70s, adopted a couple children, they had no idea the snowball effect that was starting at that point. That's what oftentimes happens. You, you, you make a decision that's in line with God's will, something new, and it starts this, this domino effect that ends up creating new culture. I mean, down through the years, there's a culture here, a very strong culture of adoption and orphan care here at the church. It's been built through the years, and now, in an increasing measure, we're seeing it impact the community around us. And my prayer is that in the years to come, that we, as individuals, will be intentional in creating healthy cultures in our workplace, in our family, in, in our schools, in our neighborhood, and that as we do so, that we'll see fruitfulness for, for the gospel. But also my prayer is that as a church community, that we will be doing the same thing, intentionally creating healthy new culture around us so that others will see the glory of the gospel and want Christ in their own lives, want to be adopted into God's family for themselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing love for us. We thank you that you humbled yourself, stepped off your heavenly throne, and came into this world not just to live a good life, but you came to die. You became obedient to death, even death on the cross, the lowliest, most humiliating form of death ever possible. But Lord, you did it to reconcile us with the Heavenly Father. And we thank you that we can now be your sons and your daughters, Father. We pray that you will equip us and work through us to be intentional in all of our spheres of influence, our daily lives, to really make a difference for the sake of the gospel. Others will see what we are doing, will see the culture that we are living out, and that they will want Christ for themselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.